Well, this morning I want us to look at the topic as we take a break from our teaching series that John is doing in the book of Ephesians. And I want us to look particularly at Jesus' last command, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, he wrote. And there he said, as Jeff had just read for us, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Again, Matthew chapter 28. And when he says observe, that means to obey, to do. So not only be hearers of the word, but be doers, that we would have practical application of the truth of God's word and practical application of the doctrine taught in Holy Scripture. But this is one of those incidents, or when you read through this particular portion of this verse, that you can easily overlook an aspect of it. And, and notice that Jesus did not simply say, teach them all my commandments, but he said, teach them to observe all my commandments. And when you're thinking in your mind about when you hear commandments, the commands of Christ, think about and substitute maybe perhaps in your thinking the law of Christ. You know, Paul wrote in Galatians uh, to bear one another's burdens so as to observe, if you will, or fulfill the law of Christ. So think about that, the law of Christ containing his commands to his new covenant people. Well, teaching people all that Jesus commanded just to teach the commands alone, that's, that's relatively easy. But when you think about teaching them to observe, that is to obey and to do Jesus' commands or obey the law of Christ, that's humanly impossible for us to have the power to do that. In the same sense that Jesus commands that we take the gospel and preach it to every creature, we have not the power to convert anybody. That is the sovereign work of God's Holy Spirit. As Jesus clearly explained to Nicodemus back in John chapter 3. Well, when Jesus encountered the rich young ruler who had refused to forsake his, his earthly treasures and follow him, Jesus said, remember at that point in Mark chapter 10, he said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And he said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Well, there's been some misapplication and misunderstanding with that particular verse as well, thinking that teaches that rich people cannot enter into the kingdom of God. <laughs> That's not what it teaches. The point there that he's making is that when a person is putting their trust or has developed an idol of their personal wealth, that what makes it difficult, not to forsake the wealth in the sense of trusting wholly in Jesus alone for salvation and eternal life. But even God can overcome the idols that we manufacture within our own hearts, anything that would substitute itself in the place of Christ in our trust in him. But just think about this as we share the gospel, and many people are uncomfortable doing that out of fear of man that you're going to be rejected. But always remember, and the same as we're teaching in the counseling class on Wednesday nights, when you're discipling and counseling, and remember counseling is just a subset, if you will, or a form of disciple-making because you're actually teaching and applying the commands of Christ, the law of Christ, informing those that are ignorant of those things. I mean, how are we going to know unless somebody teaches us these things? Well, our calling, whether in evangelizing or making disciples, is to be faithful with the truth of God's word, and it's applying it and teaching it. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that converts, and it is the power of the Holy Spirit that makes changes in people's lives. We don't have that power. We're not sovereign. We're not the Almighty. But God can do this, and nothing is impossible. God's mercy would extend to all. Again, go and preach the gospel to every creature. So our confidence is not in ourselves or how smart we are or how, you know, things that we can come up or try to intimidate or persuade people out of human reasoning or just to get external compliance to the law. But God's looking for people that have a heart for them because 
regardless of the good works that you do, it's impossible to please God apart from faith. Those things which are not done in faith for the glory of God. And that can only come through the gift of faith, which, again, is, is, is a sovereign gift of God that he gives to unbelieving people who were once his enemies and whose minds were darkened and had no spiritual understanding of these things. So our dependence is on the Holy Spirit of God to do this work, which nothing is impossible for him. So the question becomes, if Christ has commanded his disciples at that point, how do we make the impossible obedience possible? How do we do that? Well, Jesus said that this is going to happen through teaching. That's part of what I'm doing this morning, public teaching, preaching, proclaiming the word. And that's what we do privately, both public and private. And the heart of ministry is really more on the private level than it is public proclamation. While this is important, you know, to speak every Sunday for 45 minutes to an hour, it's really dealing with people one-on-one. As Paul said, I went house to house and pleaded with people, persuading people, teaching people. The heart of the ministry is, if you will, one-on-one of ministry of the word in the power of the Holy Spirit to see people obeying the commands of their Savior for the glory of their Savior. So Jesus said this is going to happen through teaching. He said, make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And again, the ultimate goal of Jesus' commandments, not that we just simply observe them for the sake of doing good works. The ultimate goal is that God be glorified. Because the Scripture clearly tells us in whatever we do, You know, whether we eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Well, what kind of teaching, if that's how it's going to happen, the, the ordained means, the means of grace that we talk about, what kind of teaching does Jesus want us to use to bring about such impossible obedience from a human perspective? Well, if the goal of our teaching and instruction is a pure heart, and it's for the ultimate glory of our God, then our teaching must keep God's glory at the very center of it. Our teaching must be Christ-centered as opposed to man-centered. And I challenge you this morning, listen to contemporary sermons, and for the most part you will find they are man-centered. They are not Christ-centered, Christ-exalting preaching from today's pulpit. And we need to be praying for that, that God would raise up righteous men to preach his word faithfully from his pulpit, a Christ-centered message. That's how people grow. That's how people are sanctified and conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's through Christ-centered preaching where he's exalted. Ask yourself a simple question. Did I learn more about the preacher himself? Did I learn more about his family? Did I learn more about his vacation, more about his dog than I did about Christ? And again, there's a big difference between entertaining people and tickling their ears versus Christ-centered preaching. If you want to keep the wolves out of your church, you preach Christ. Again, you feed them sheep food because the wolves will not eat, eat that, and they will quickly leave. Well, our teaching must be Christ-centered, not man-centered. So how then do we keep the glory of God in proper focus when teaching Jesus and preaching Jesus? I desire nothing but to know Christ and him crucified. I preach nothing but Christ and him crucified, as Paul says. Well, we do this by preaching and teaching that the meaning and motivation of the commands following the law of Christ are always directly connected with the person and the works of Jesus. The person and works of Jesus are the primary means by which God has glorified himself in this world. No revelation of God is greater. Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, John 14. He was the fullness of God, manifested in human flesh and dwelt among his own, but his own would not receive him. Therefore, Jesus' person is the manifestation of the glory of God. Jesus also said as he was praying, you remember this in John 17, 
right before he was arrested and led to his trial and crucifixion. He says, I glorified you on the earth, speaking to his father and praying, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So the person of Christ was manifested on this earth, fully God, fully human, and he came to accomplish the work that the Father had given him to do. And that's why the last words from the cross, it is finished. I have completed that work. I have accomplished it. Therefore, his work is a manifestation of the glory of God. Well, what Jesus is commanding is a life that displays the glory of his person and the effect of his works. We are not to disconnect his commands from who he is and what he's done. You can't do that. And when we're obedient to his commands, that is following the law of Christ, the world sees the glory of God and the fruit of his works through our lives. And the person and work of Jesus must be properly understood as the basis so that from the very start, his commands rest on the proper foundation as we make disciples, as we teach, as we preach. You know, Jesus came into this world sent by God, the Father, as the promised long-awaited Messiah. And recall back in Matthew 16, when Jesus asked his disciples who they thought he was, remember Peter and the boldness of Peter? Remember Peter characteristically, either he's... Full throttle or full stop, either gets an A or an F. (laughs) Jesus asked his disciples, who do you, you know, the people are saying this and saying that about you. And Jesus asked them, who do you say? One of the most important questions ever asked. Who do you say that Jesus is? And Peter answered again, you are, you are the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, son of of the living God. And how did Jesus respond to Peter's bold statement? He said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And that shows that people's minds that are darkened, those that are dead in their trespasses and sin, a dead man, because of his sin nature, dead in those things, a dead man cannot see the brightness of the midday sun, no matter how brightly it shines. You know, a dead man cannot feel the weight of an elephant sitting on his chest because he's dead. And the point that Jesus is making here, Simon, you you, you didn't come up with this on your own. You're not that smart. You're not that spiritually discerning. It's only by the grace of God and my Father has revealed who I am to you. Because other people saw the works of Jesus. They heard his claims and they denied him. We'll, We'll talk about that as we go on. Well... Remember when Jesus was put on trial, the initial charge was blasphemy. That's what the Jewish leaders, they didn't like anyone coming in and upstart, if you will, rocking the boat. You know, nothing's changed. They had their system. They were getting their money. They were living well. The elites, if you will, while all the other people were suffering. Remember, they're under Roman occupation. But these men were willing to compromise with the powers of Rome. But they were living comfortably. Kind of reminds you of George Orwell's animal farm. All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. <laughs> and we see this thing living out right before us today. I mean, I mean, a perfect example of that was the people that were full of compassion and virtue signaling. And as soon as they got these homeless people, refugees, and immigrants from the South, and they were bussed up to the white liberal elite, Martha's Vineyard it took less than 24 hours for their compassion to run out before those people were bust out of there as quickly as possible. And again, it's, it's the leadership of the world. They're not living the same as other people are, the people that are suffering, the people there that they are supposed to serve and to minister to rightly and justly. Well, if you remember, the initial charge that they brought on by the Jewish leaders you know, is blasphemy. And eventually it turned against treason uh, when you know Caesar was challenging the authority of, of Caesar at the time. Which again, all you got to do is look at the headlines today. Political leaders don't like anything that would uh, turn your allegiance away from them 
to someone else. And that's why they, they, they cannot have Jesus as Lord. Well, Jesus made the claims to be the Messiah, the, the King of Israel, the Son of God. You recall that. And that's why the Jewish leaders at the time is blasphemy. Remember they, when he said that, I am. They wanted to pick up stones and kill him because they know what he was claiming. Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest, asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see. And listen what he says, I am. And that's the same as when Moses was at the, Who do I say sent me? I am that I am. And when he said that, they knew exactly what he was claiming. And again, they wanted to kill him for it. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Mark chapter 14. And even though Jesus acknowledged that he was the Messiah, he is the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, his favorite designation for himself, you know, do a word study on it and search. You will find that he likes to refer to himself as the Son of Man. And that was always kind of confusing to me early on. What, what does that mean? Well, the title carries the obvious meaning that Jesus was fully man and fully God. I don't fully understand how that works. But that's what the Bible teaches. That's what I teach and what I proclaim. Uh, my finite mind struggles with that. But that is the truth of God's word. And the title carries, again, that he was fully man. In addition, it's used by the prophet Daniel. Uh, indicates a claim of universal authority. Well, let me read from Daniel chapter 7 to give you some context on that. Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days. I've always liked that title of God too, the Ancient of Days. And was presented before him. And to him was given dominion. Now listen to this. This talks about the authority of Christ. And to him was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, all nations and languages should serve him. Remember the Tower of Babel where the people were scattered out and they developed those different languages. A people of every language, Christ is going to have dominion over that. His dominion, his dominion, his rule, his kingship, it is an everlasting, it's not going to end which shall not pass away, Daniel, again, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Well, the terms Messiah and Son of God, those terms in the context, and that's why it's always important that we understand the context and the culture and the things that were going on at the time, those particular terms, they were loaded with political implications. You know, they would give the term Son of God and Messiah would give the wrong impression about the nature of his first advent or his first coming. And you've got to try and put yourself, and, and you can draw a lot of parallels from what we're seeing today. That's why I'm saying the Scripture is always relevant. And as we develop a, a worldview based upon the truth of God's Word, it helps us interpret what's really going on and how to respond biblically for the glory of God. Well... Those titles, again, Messiah and the Son of God, would contribute to the erroneous misunderstanding of the day that the Messiah was going to come and conquer Rome and liberate Israel. That was the hopes of the people uh, in order to set up his, his earthly kingdom at that time. And the popular and hopeful notion and understanding of what the people long for is that the Messiah would, would not suffer, but he's going to come and immediately rule. you got to remember, these people were occupied in their, in their territory, you know, by Rome. And they were, they were understanding they were slaves, if you will, to Rome. They didn't understand that their true slavery was to sin. And Christ had come to set them free. And freedom in the, the truest sense. That Christ was going to set us free from the bondage of sin. He was going to take us out of what I see are the two kingdoms. 
perspective in, in scripture of either the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light. The light has come into the world to shine. And but they were hung up on the temporal situation that was going on. You know, just as many people in the world today would like to be freed from political oppression or tyranny or a dictator. Uh, we're looking or they're looking for the Messiah to come and set them free from all that and set things right. And that's going to happen at some point. But that was not the meaning and the purpose of his first advent of coming in to the world. Well, well, the title Son of Man did carry exalted claims for those who had ears to hear and understand what Jesus was really saying. Or saying. However, on the surface or the face of what he was saying, didn't appear to be making explicit claims to political power. But yet, you know, it was going to be a challenge to the Roman authority, someone coming in and upsetting what's going on. The, you know, the governor at that point over that province, as long as he was keeping things under control, you know, Caesar probably didn't really care what was going on. But as soon as there was an uprising or a rebellion, you know, then the governor's going to have to give an account for what's going on. You, you saw... Through Matthew 28, when Jeff read earlier, nothing's changed. Again, Jesus, after he was resurrected from the dead at the tomb, what, what did the political authorities come up with? <clears throat> well, let's just pay him off. Well, gave them a large sum of money to keep their mouth shut and tell a lie. The same thing's going on today. People are corrupted. They're blackmailed. They paid off a lot. And, and it said the lie was continuing, as I preached a few weeks ago, about the lies. It's we're living in a world of lies, and we are called to follow the truth and proclaim the truth and challenge those lies. And ultimately, it's of Satan, who is the father of lies and a murderer from the beginning. Well, by saying the Son of Man, it, it didn't carry explicit claims to political power. But by using that title, while, while not rejecting the truth of the other titles, Jesus was able to make his claims that the kingdom of God is at hand. You know, the, the, again, the Jewish people, they were longing for the day that the Messiah was going to come in triumphant and establish the kingdom of God. Did they expect, you know, Christ to come in on the white war horse with the, the sword and put an end to all this stuff and set things right? He, he, how did he come in? Remember on the donkey. <laughs> he came in humbly. He didn't come in as a, a conquering, conquering warrior, but he's coming back that way on his second advent. Well... To them, if they had the vision the Messiah is going to come in on the conquering war horse, wielding the sword, and the kingdom would mean that the enemies of Israel are, are defeated, the, our sins are removed, diseases are healed, the dead are raised, righteousness and joy and peace, they've ruled the earth with the Messiah on the throne. That was their understanding at the time. And Jesus arrived, and he said, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. It's important for us to remember today, regardless of your position in society or how much power you wield, every man is commanded to repent and to believe the gospel. No exclusions. The scripture clearly says that everyone is going to give an account, regardless if you're the president of Russia or China or the United States, or any other political power, these are not above the authority of Christ. And they will give an account, and they will, or they need to repent. You know, that's one reason I commend John MacArthur for what he recently did in his open letter to the governor of California. When the governor used the words of our Lord, in order to justify abortion, as that is loving your neighbor. And MacArthur had the courage to stand against evil and call him out. The governor is not beyond the authority of God. <laughs> a matter of fact, according to Romans 13, he is to be a minister or a servant, if you will, to execute righteous judgment upon evil, not commit evil. And I commend him. And that's part of what trying to establish in the Act Like Men class is men that have conviction and men that have clarity of the truth and men that have the courage to stand for the truth in opposition to evil. And evil is running abundant. 
when you think about the nature of women that advocate for the killing of the unborn, that is so contrary to the nature of the woman that God created, the mother of all living, Eve, to kill their own offspring and willingly and promote that is such an evil, heinous act that that must be stood against regardless of who is promoting it. Christ is reigning over all. He reigns over the governor of California. He reigns over all. All authority is given unto him. So I applaud MacArthur having the courage to stand where many people won't. Well, the title again, Son of Man, carries the obvious meaning that Jesus was fully man, but again, according to the prophet Daniel, it's the claim of a universal authority. The Jewish people, again, were, were longing for the day when the Messiah would come and establish the kingdom of God. Jesus, he said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Again, no exclusions. The saving reign of God had arrived. If it's by the finger of God, he said that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. God himself, God with us, Emmanuel. We sing about that particularly at Christmas time. But with all this going on, there was a mystery. Jesus called it the secret of the kingdom of God, Mark chapter 4. The mystery was that the kingdom of God would appear in two stages, and they didn't, they didn't see that. We have the benefit of it today to, to see and understand these things. And in the first advent or the first stage, the Messiah would come and suffer, and in the second stage, the Messiah would come in his full glory and execute judgment on all the earth. That's why our hope is ultimately in that. Not in elected officials, not in new legislation, but ultimately it's going to come down to the judge of all judge and judge of the earth. Will he not do right? And they will be held accountable unless they repent. And that's another thing I commend MacArthur for in his letter. He said, not only are you doing evil and you need to repent, but he said, I'm concerned about your eternal soul. And he's focused gospel-oriented in that letter. It's just not calling out evil, but it's calling a man in a position of power as a servant of God under the authority of God. Repent from your sin and turn to Christ for your eternal soul. And Governor Newsom is not beyond the grace of God if he will repent. So remember that anytime we're calling out evil or exposing lies, that ultimately we're preaching the gospel. It's a gospel ministry. It's ministry of the word. We're confronting people with their sin, but telling them at the same time there's grace and mercy to be found in Christ alone. Turn from your sin and turn to him. Well, the primary work of Jesus on the earth during his first coming was to suffer and die for the forgiveness of sins. He said, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and he gave his life as a ransom for many. Mark chapter 10. And at the Last Supper, there with his disciples gathered in the upper room, he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. His atoning blood at the cross. But suffering and dying for his people was not Jesus' only mission. However, it was central. In the shedding of his blood, Jesus established and secured all of those new covenant promises that we have today. And and the new covenant promises, that which we celebrate every week at the observance of the table, those promises included that all those who are entering into his kingdom will have their sins forgiven. They will have a law written on their hearts. And they will know God personally. And they will have the Holy Spirit within them so that they can willingly and joyfully obey his commands and follow the law of Christ. That's the blessings of the new covenant, which is the better covenant based on better promises. The old is obsolete, the old covenant made with the nation of Israel. Christ is the new lawgiver. The blessings of the new covenant are what enables and equips us 
as believers and disciples to obey Jesus' commands. You know, Jesus' death and resurrection brings about the impossible obedience that Christ demands. But there was more to his mission in that three-year public ministry that he had. Remember when John the Baptist questioned whether Jesus was really the Messiah, he sent word to Jesus from prison. Remember what John the Baptist had done where he confronted Herod? Hey, what you're doing is not right. You're not above the law, the law of God. You're under God's authority. You better repent. What you're doing with your brothers, he wasn't shirking back. He was a courageous man. Look what they did. They took his head. He sent word, John the Baptist, Jesus, are you the one who is to come and shall we look for another? And Jesus said, go and tell John what you hear and and see the blind receive their sight and lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf can hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Well, what does that mean, offended by me in this sense? And some of the context, in other words, all my preaching and healing are a demonstration of my Messiahship, that I am God in the flesh. But don't take offense that I'm not fulfilling the political expectations of establishing earthly rule at this time. I am the one who is to come, but my mission at this time is one of suffering, the suffering servant. To give my life as a ransom for many, he says in order to redeem my people from their sins and reconcile them to a God. And by his death and his resurrection and the shedding of his blood, the establishment of this new covenant, we have peace with God. We're reconciled. We're justified by God. Who will bring a charge against God's elect when we understand that our judge is also our justifier? You know, the scripture says everyone will stand and give an account. And I believe that. But I think our account will be before the judgment throne of Christ. I have the righteousness of Christ imputed to me. My sins are forgiven. Jesus paid it all. My debt in full. Not in part, but the whole of my sin has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. That's my understanding of the gospel. That's the account we will give. Christ and him crucified. I'm in union with Christ. I am the beloved. I am the bride of Christ. I am spotless and perfect, not based on my own merit and my own work, but on the righteousness of Christ. And when I go to that marriage feast of that lamb, I am given the robes to wear. I don't wear my own robes. And they are white and spotless. And a pure bride will be given to the son for what he's accomplished. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Well, his mission was successful. And he accomplished it. And after three days in the grave, Jesus rose from the dead. That was God's eternal plan. It was further evidence of his supreme authority and power over death. He said clearly, In John chapter 10, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again, the charge, this charge I have received from my father. He wasn't the victim in the sense that we often think of victimhood. You know, after Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared to his disciples on many occasions and they gave them proof that he was physically alive. He opened the scriptures to them so they they could see how he had fulfilled the promises. And then he commissions these men to be his witnesses and he instructs them to wait for the promised Holy Spirit. I'm going to send another one just like me, the comforter. He will guide and lead you into all the truth. And then he ascended into heaven. 
And it's on that foundation and on that basis of who he is and what he has accomplished for his people that Jesus issues his commands. His commands cannot be separated, as I said before, from his person and his work. The obedience that he demands is the fruit of his redeeming work. It's the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. It doesn't come from you or our work of the flesh. That's God working in us. The obedience that Christ demands is the fruit of his redeeming work and the display of his glory and power in us. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the ones that bring us to life through the gospel. And that's why Jesus came in order to create a people who would glorify him by bearing the fruit of his kingdom. And if we rightly understand what Jesus is commanding us to do, and if we are to find our hope and our supreme joy and contentment in Christ alone, his commands to us will not seem as burdensome and severe, but they'll actually be very sweet to our souls. The kind of obedience that Jesus demands and rightly demands moves from the inside, if you will, from that new heart to the outside, the external, the works. Where the person of Christ is savored on the inside. We love Christ. Give me a heart to know you and love you. I need that heart. I, I don't do that. I Naturally, we hate God. People don't like thinking that or uncomfortable with that. But the idea is the lost hate God. There are certain aspects, as long as they're worshiping an idol, that they're comfortable with. But the true and living God is revealed in Scripture. People will not have that man to reign over me. That's the heart of the natural man. Well, with this changed heart, things that come from the inside, because it's out of the heart that sin comes from, and it's out of the heart that man speaks, the scripture tells us. We just use our tongues and our lips to communicate what's going on inside. But it's through this new covenant, if you will, where we use our members of our bodies in order to glorify God in these good works. And when his commands and the law of Christ is understood and seen for what it really is, they turn the absolute authority of Jesus into a treasure chest of joy. Again, if you're worn out and weary and heavy laden, come unto me, I will give you rest. Those were the people that were suffering under the hardship of the law that was weighing them down, where righteousness was trying to be earned through the keeping of that law. And remember, in that old covenant law, that Mosaic law, there were 600 and something commands, and if you broke one, you broke the whole thing. And people were worn out. And then you've got the religious establishment coming along and heaping more and expanding it beyond what God had given them. But the point was there, the law was never intended to save anyone. didn't have the power. And that's why we have the blessing of the new covenant, the new heart. Well, when we understand that Jesus has paid our debt in full and that not only has he declared us righteous and justified, he's gone beyond and adopted us into his family. And all spiritual blessings have been secured by Christ, and he's going to give those to his people. And we're longing for that day, and he said, I'm I'm going now to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come again and receive you unto myself. And there is great hope for every believer this morning in that truth alone. Well, there can be no more desirable commands imaginable that when we come to live with Christ and be united to him so as to enter into his rest and joy. But the mind has got to be conformed to this because the natural mind and the things that we've gone through in life, don't we don't tend to think that way. 
So we need the grace of God to discipline ourselves to have that eternal perspective on life. That there's no guarantee that tomorrow's going to be better than today. But we have the eternal perspective of Psalm 73 with Asaph. Yes, the king is coming again. Yes, all things will be made right. Yes, all these spiritual blessings are secured for me. I have this inheritance. Nothing can take it away. As we sang earlier, no one can pluck me from his hand. And he, Jesus said, all that come unto me, I will turn none away. But I will raise them up at the last day. And he said, not only can no one take them from my hand, they can't take them from the Father's hand either. These are great truths and promises of Scripture for us to rejoice in this morning. You know, Augustine, or Augustine, however you want to pronounce that, you know, he's famous for saying, command what you wish, but give what you command. And that's exactly what Christ has done. And let let me explain that. For instance, in his final command for us to go and make disciples, on one side Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And on the other side he says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The one says, I, I, I command you because I have the right to do that. All authority in the universe is mine. And the other side says, I command you because I will help you. And I will accomplish that. No man can thwart his purpose. He knows the beginning and the end. What his word he sends it forth to do, it will be accomplished. No man can thwart his purpose. So we have great confidence as we evangelize, as we make disciples. It's God that's working in those people, not us. And as you walk in obedience, don't pat yourself on the back, but give praise and honor and glory to the grace of God and the power of His Spirit to give you a heart and a desire and the power to walk in holiness. Search after Christ. Keep your eyes focused on Him, the author and the finisher of your faith, not yourself. One may ask, and this is a question that we need to look at, because I I hear different opinions out there among godly people. And how do we relate to the world? How do we relate to one another that hold different views on things? Well, did Jesus give commands to the world, or did he give them only to his disciples? Are his commandments the law of Christ, if you will, an ethic for the world? Or just for the followers of Jesus only to obey? And I believe that his commands are meant for the world because he demands all people everywhere to repent and believe and become his disciples. No one's excluded, as I said earlier, from that. I don't think there's a hands-off or out-of-bounds. Again, some true brothers in Christ hold different positions that these are things for us as the community of God within the four walls of the church. I think we're to be salt and light. I think we're to challenge evil and expose lies. Again, I think no man is beyond the command to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of position. I do believe that God has established three institutions. Basically, the the family, the civil government, and the church. I think those, those have different spheres of influence and different spheres of authority. In jurisdictions, I think at times they overlap. I think there's a special relationship between Christ as head of the church and his people, the husband of the bride. But, you know, it's often misunderstood and people it's affected the church. This idea that separation of church and state, if you know the history of that, that was actually a, a, a question by the Danbury Baptist Association that wrote to Thomas Jefferson because they, didn't, they were having state churches back in the time 
of basic american history you know if you were a resident of a certain state there was a state church and basically jefferson responded to the baptists and said no the church is not going to get or the government's not going to get involved in the church you know they recognize christ as the head of that and again separation of church and state but god is over the state god is over the family and god is over the church and those things and these are issues particularly in light of today and what we've been through that need to be examined biblically and understand how do we respond to the glory of god in these cases and again i know people have different views and understanding but i'm asking you to you know think about some of these things if all authority where does that end you know and uh christ is king king of kingdom lord of lords so think about these because they do have real life implications on how we live you know jesus lays claim you know he lays claim to all nations all ethnic and people groups on the planet no exceptions jesus is not a tribal deity he is not the white man's religion i've heard that all authority in the universe is his all creation is accountable to him and he and everyone owes allegiance and worship to him alone the point of this final command go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the father son and the holy spirit teaching them observe all i've commanded you no exclusions you know in god's providence he sent paul westward rather than east and you can see the implications of that today with the christianization of western europe or europe and then it spread here to the americas versus you know going east the spread of the gospel but it's going to the four corners of the earth and we're commanded to preach the gospel to every creature but god's going to save his redeemed his elect out of the world through the preaching and proclamation how does faith come by hearing the word and we've got to send preachers out there that's why we have missions well the important thing we need to know is the church and again i said there's different jurisdictions and different authority and we're not to exceed our authority which the church does that at times the family does that at times and the government does that at times jesus did not send his people to make disciples with a sword his kingdom does not come by force and i hear that today also and i stand strongly opposed to the church using force uh, to accomplish the means Um, but it comes by the truth and the power of god my kingdom is not of this world he said if my kingdom were of this world my servants would have been fighting and they weren't but we do have a sword but it's different than the one given to the government the sword given to the government is to execute righteous judgment against evildoers and to reward those that do good. Well, how do you know what's evil and what's good? The standard of God's law, Christ's law. The sword, in that sense, was not. We have the sword of truth, the word of God, that we go and proclaim. Islam is the one that converts people to Islam at the end of the sword. <laughs> not the christian church because we have the power of god through the proclamation of the truth to confront evil some of you jesus said in luke 21 some of you they're going to put to death jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth that's clear but he didn't always exercise that authority and power to prevent his people's pain and suffering. We've seen that throughout church history and the martyrs. We see it today. Even though he could, and sometimes he does, he calls us to walk the same road that he walked. If they persecuted me, they're also going to persecute you. Blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That's being persecuted for standing for the tr- truth and being firm. 
not going along to get along, not compromising. But if you stand for righteousness and against evil and proclaim the truth and be salt and light, you can expect to be persecuted. Could be in the workplace, could be in the neighborhood. The universal authority of Jesus produces a mission of teaching, disciple-making, resulting in God-glorifying obedience to all that he's commanded. That's what we're to do. And it's a costly mission. But it's a joyful one. If you have the right perspective and attitude and understand what we are to do, because the cause and purpose of Jesus cannot fail, the victory is secured. It's just a matter of time. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, he says, for your reward is great in heaven. And again, that gets back to that eternal perspective. Not having our hope in the things of this world which are going to be burned up but having our hope in the everlasting kingdom that can never be shaken or its foundations, a city built by God. There's, we're just pilgrims passing through. And we're to spread the gospel, the good news of Christ to sinners everywhere. And command all men to repent and to believe. That's our mission. We're under the captain of the army in all power and authority. We're, as I said before, we're not at liberty to make it up as we want to. But as Paul told Timothy, you're to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And are you doing, are you fulfilling that commission? Are you making disciples? Are you ministering the word of truth? Are you exposing evil, confronting lies, regardless of who it is? And we're to do that, speak the truth in love. You know, be patient, understanding in the sense that you were once living in darkness. You were once an enemy of Christ. But realize whoever you're talking to that they're not beyond the grace of God and the mercy of God if they would call out and turn to Christ in faith. And that's the good news that we preach. That's the good news that we teach. And those are part of what we command people to observe the law of Christ for the glory of God. And we remind ourselves each and every week by partaking of the Lord's table. This is what Jesus has come to do, that we have a new heart that we can do these things, walk in obedience for the glory of God. So ponder these things as the men come and pass out the elements for the Lord's table. And if you're visiting with us this morning and you're believers in Christ, living by faith, trusting in him alone,